Dr. Shannon Sogendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Sogendahl. Welcome to Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. I'm sitting across from my lovely wife, Stephanie Sogendahl. Hey, hey. Hope you guys have been enjoying the podcast. Today's a big day for us because we have a special guest on. I'm not going to tell you just yet who it is. Oh, I almost ruined it. (laughs) We'll get into it in a second. You guys remember when we did that first podcast, we talked about greatness. And I like to focus in on 300 seconds a day. If you can do 300 seconds a day, that's not the solution to your problem. But oftentimes, it's the solution to get you going. So if you are not on track, if you've you know, gotten tired, gotten sick, taking care of the kids, and you got a little bit away from what your uh, mission or your goal is, the 300 second idea really gets you back on track because there's no excuse not to be able to do 300 seconds a day. Right, you should be able to say, "I'm going to focus in on my goal, my dream, for 300 seconds." And if you do that consecutively for multiple days, then that gets you back on track to say, "Hey, now I can really start working here." And so, because I have that concept, and because I love thinking about the grind and how much you have to do to be great, I thought of one of my best friends who is an example to me of someone who's great and has just always excelled in what he's done. And today I have Dr. Alan Lim, one of my closest friends. Yay, Al Man. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome. So, Al Man, thanks for coming to the house. What do you think of the Match on the Fire studio? I am so floored, but this is so you because you have always been all in with whatever you do. And this studio is as good, if not better, than any professional podcast studio I've ever been in. That is true. You're a committer. I'm committed. Right? I'm committed. Yeah. That's why I'm we'll to. pay you later, Al, but you I am are committed. a committer. I, you got to feel the part like, to I'm act the part, it. right, yeah. Al? I mean, so you're you, not going to. I've never known you to do anything without wanting to go all in, full in, and to do it as well as you possibly can. And the thing is, is good for you is literally like incredible for everyone else. So this is pretty incredible. Well, so thanks. That's a, that thanks, is Al. Very and, true, and Al, man. You, you out there in medicine, I mean, Al's actually famous, but he's not uber famous, right? So maybe everyone out there doesn't know who Al, big deal. Alan Al's Lim is. But deal. Alan Lim is famous because he uh, was a cycling coach. So he's, a, he's an exercise physiologist, has his PhD in exercise physiology. And I'll let him talk about this. He's a sports scientist. He's a cycling coach. He coached some of the greatest athletes in the world in cycling. He coached Lance Armstrong. He started a drink company called Scratch. And he'll explain that a little bit. So that basically is the best energy, nutritional, everything product that you need when you're it's exercising. It's more than just drinks now too. It's more, yeah. It's yeah. everything. Yeah. We got a whole ecosystem. So Al, yeah, you do. and me, you and me, we've seen it all together, right? Oh yeah. I mean, we met probably when I was 18 years old, 19 years old back at UC Davis where we both did our undergrads. Uh, we met through uh, the sport of cycling. We were both on the UC Davis cycling team. We had the same coach, Dr. Wigbert Sai. Oh, I didn't know you were going to be a wig. Yeah. Wig's awesome. I mean, he was a big, I think that. I, yeah, for both of us. Yeah, for both yeah. of us. And to have great mentors in our lives, that's a, that's a huge thing. To have shared mentors, that's a, an even bigger deal. Yeah. And we can get into that a little bit. Let's just go back in, in time. Al, tell us about your childhood because I find it interesting, you know, hearing about yeah. how you came up. You know, I think that my childhood was the classic Asian American immigrant experience. I'm originally, my parents originally from China, but they grew up, met in the Philippines. And then from the Philippines, we came to Los Angeles, California. And, you know, they had this huge dream about what America is, was, represented to them. And they came here to, to literally follow that dream. It sounds cliche, but it was very real for 
them and my family. They started out with a little Chinese restaurant. Eventually, my mom went back to school. She became a pharmacist, and we came from kind of the the Chinatown to East LA to the burbs Ooh, of East Los LA. Angeles. Yeah, good tacos. <laughs> um, and I think that my story was really influenced not just by my parents and their work ethic, but it was also influenced by the fact that in 1984, the Olympics came through Los Angeles. And, oh. um, you, did you go see it? I, you know, my parents argued a lot. Like they had decided that they weren't going to buy tickets to the Olympics because it was just way too expensive. And then my dad went behind my mom's back and bought some tickets and she was so angry. But the experience changed all of our lives. And so she... Ultimately, forget it. So, so ultimately, good on him. <laughs> he you made, you made to, a good call. He, yeah, he got exactly. called off. The Did that couch. affect your your brother a lot too? I, I think so. Absolutely, it affected both of us because we really, really understood that this was something super special and totally different. And even the way that people in LA responded to the Olympic Games, like we were all told to use public transportation and not drive our cars. And for one summer in LA. Everyone did that. Oh, amazing. And it was the only summer of my childhood that I didn't have an asthma attack. Like <laughs> smog or whatever. So. Wow. Al's brother's like a hero of mine because he's a, he was an army attack helicopter pilot and then he became a rescue helicopter pilot for the Coast Guard. So he's a pretty cool dude as well. So then you went to UC Davis for undergrad and you, and you undergrad. studied yep. physiology, right? Studied exercise science at UC Davis. And, you know, really this is where our stories converge because I didn't know what I was supposed to do with an exercise science degree. I just knew that I loved it, right? I knew that this was something that I was innately interested in. It was something I was interested in ever since I saw the Olympic Games and realized that you could apply some form of science or intellect as well as a lot of dedication and brawn to a sport. And that's what I wanted to study. Uh, but it wasn't until I got in a conversation with you about what the hell I was going to do with my life. And you were kind of like, Al, here's the deal. <laughs> I'm going to go to medical school. You're going to get your PhD. We're going to reconnect in this place called Boulder, Colorado. It's really awesome. And we're going to go work for a pro cycling team. And, you know, just I think because somebody else validated that that was real and that was a possibility, I was totally sold. And the funny thing is, is that's actually, that is a true story. Yeah. Thanks I, for planning my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know I was making that plan. I just know I was, Al and I were both racing bikes. And I think we both realized that racing bikes for a living it's an incredible endeavor. And when you have a certain level of skill set, that next level, the level of the elite athlete that can, you know, really turn it on when the Olympic Games are happening or when the Tour de France is happening, it's just this big jump, you know. And and I had the realization when I was in a bike race once, I was super fit and super trained and I felt great. And I was climbing up this hill and this guy next to me, we we were off the front, the two of us, and I'm like, ah, I'm gonna get this. And he just dropped me. I mean, he dropped me like a bad habit and I had no excuse. Yeah. I had no excuse. Like, oh, I had a little cold. It's a lonely moment. I'm a little, yeah, it was a very lonely moment where I was like, ooh, he's just a lot, lot better than me. Yeah. Like minutes better than me. Yeah. Um, not a little bit. So it's a funny segue because for me, that was a moment for me where I was thinking like, maybe I can race my bike, but I don't know if I'm going to win the Tour de France. Like I thought of it at that moment and I was yeah. like, I think I want to be a doctor instead. Yeah. That's what's really interesting, right? Because there are some things that you truly do need to be talented for, right? And that you need to have a talent for. But I do think that everybody has a talent. I think that everyone is good at something. And that means you got to try a lot. You have to experiment a lot that you have to get your butt kicked a lot. And eventually you, you find a path either that you're just so passionate about that you're willing to grind it out and persist 
And it's incredible when you do dedicate yourself to something that you do become better because I wasn't good at exercise science when I first started. Yeah, for sure. Right. And I think the story even speaks to that. I mean, you might say, well, if you just stuck it out in cycling, you're not even as good at the grind. Like you're not good to mentally say, I can just keep on going this. You have to have some failures and then come back from those and say, you know what? I didn't like that. I stopped that last time. I want to keep, I'm going to keep going a little bit harder, a little bit longer than I did that last time before I threw in the towel. We talk about it with our, with our son because he was terrible at ball sports. Terrible. Yeah. You know, like, sorry, Soren, if you listen to these podcasts, but like ran from son, the ball. you were terrible. Like, ball, ball thrown sports. his way, and he and then he <laughs> discovered jujitsu and wrestling, and he crushed killed it. it. Crushed, like it. he killed it. And it was just what you said. You have to yeah. find that thing that you have a talent, a knack for, yeah. and that you have a passion for that you love because you got to love the grind. And we'll keep coming back to that. But more importantly, you have to have others in your life who believe in you, who support you. And I think that was a big part of our relationship, right? Like your sense that this was possible validated the direction that I went. It was, for example, hard to talk to my parents about the fact that I wanted to be an exercise scientist working on the world cycling tour. They didn't have a single concept of what that was, right? It wasn't normal for them. It wasn't become a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, get a job as an accountant. So Al, you're saying you got to surround yourself with pumps, not drains. Pumps, not trains. Exactly. Learn that quote exactly. from Al. Yeah, we love that quote from <laughs> Al. Surround yourself right? with pumps, not drains. That's we tell right. it to our kids all the time. Yeah. The negativity, I mean, who's got time for that, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's already hard enough that you don't necessarily need to set yourself up from failure before you've even tried. Yeah. Tell us how you made the jump to become a coach. So you did yeah. all this training in physiology. And, and I'm going to tell you guys, that Al is truly a great coach. Like he's, he's an amazing coach. I've seen him do it. And his thinking is so forward and it's just cutting edge all the time. He's always thinking about ways he can get his athletes to be a little bit better. I always steal your analogy that I just love. It's simple. Your popcorn analogy. Yeah. Al talks about training and overtraining. And he says, it's like popcorn. You know, you have some jiffy pop, you apply some heat to it. It starts to pop. And pretty soon you get to a sweet spot and your jiffy pop is all white and fluffy but if you keep on applying that heat, you start to burn your jiffy pop. And yeah. that's like overtraining. Yeah. You don't want to burn your kernels yeah. because that, that stinks and everyone knows it. <laughs> I just use that as an example because it's this stuff that Al comes out of Al's mouth all the time when he's training athletes yeah. and it's yeah. great. He often refers to food when he has analogies as well. The marshmallow, popcorn, all those analogies. Yeah. They're I don't all- let my education get in the way of my love for food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Al uh-huh. is a great chef, by yeah. the way, as well. So, so, so again, tell us how you jumped to... Uh, when you started, you know, coaching, started using well, your physiology. Well, I, I think I realized that I didn't like waking up really early in the morning. And so I was going to get up early in the morning. I'd rather be warm on the sidelines than <laughs> actually in the middle of the race. Yeah. So part of it was actually kind of realizing that, you know, maybe I didn't have the talent to be a pro cyclist, but that I really, really loved the science and I loved sharing it, right? I loved talking about it and I loved teaching. And I think that ultimately the best coaches are teachers. And so you have to love being able to share that information and helping others become better. And I always found a lot of gratification in that service, right? And I think that everyone who is in medicine, who is a first responder, that they're in service to others as well. And that was really the kind of point of view that I always came from. It gave me a lot of purpose, a lot of meaning to be able to help take care of people. It wasn't for me about winning bike races or, you know, turning out national champions or 
even, you know, about going to, to the Olympics or the Tour de France. That all, all, all of which he did. Which is crazy, right? <laughs> but there wasn't, it wasn't, there was never that finite goal. It was just, I want to help people become better. I want to inspire the inspirational. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. What was your first coaching gig? So my first real coaching gig was at the University of California, Davis. They needed a coach for the women's cycling team. I was pretty single back then, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like a good Sounded gig. Sounded like a good deal. Yeah. He's like, you shave your legs, so do I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We had a lot, we had a lot, a lot in common. common. Yep. Um, so I just volunteered and that was a great experience for me because it put into practice what I was learning in the classroom. All of a sudden, I had a way to think about and apply these concepts I was learning in theory and seeing if they actually held any water in real life, right? Yeah. And it was, I think, that combination of studying and trying or practicing that made things work. And there's a big disconnect between academic idea or academic science and real world practice. And that chasm is often really hard to bridge. And yeah, I was definitely. always fascinated by that. I mean, science has its own methodology and you know, it's an important one. It can create a lot of knowledge and a lot of information. But by the time you get to practicing with one individual, you can't really necessarily rely on the average. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, listening to you talk right now, thinking back on, you know, you had mentioned Wig, Wig Sai, our coach. Yeah. We both had the same coach and he was a super ridiculously smart guy, right? Yeah. And he was a very big scientist and he had us really, you know, track everything and look at the numbers and look at the data. Right. And, and figure out what was happening and what we should be doing. And then, you know, applying that to science. And I think that changed my life a lot too, on how I approach taking care of a medical patient. Yeah. Clearly it sounds like you were just super eager to do that as well. Meaning you heard all these cool theorems and things about physiology right. and you're like, well, how can I get the most out of this muscle? Yeah, <laughs> like, let's that's do right. It. And it started to create, I think, a real positive feedback loop on one another because being in the classroom gave me all these ideas to help me with coaching and being a coach gave me all of this interest in the academic side of things. Were you there that time? Wig had told me just to go ride for like five hours a day. He's like, just go ride for five hours a day. Don't worry about anything else. And then just come back next week. And we came back to his house and he looked at my legs and he goes, you didn't do what I said. I hadn't even talked to him and looked at, opened my mouth. That's right. And he goes, you didn't do what I said. I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't do what you said. Yeah, I rode so for five white. hours a day. Yeah. And if you guys don't know me, I'm Danish and I just don't tan. And he was looking at my amazing Danish tan legs saying there's no way that you spent five hours on the bike. So well, when you pulled up to short, there was still a There was still a tail line. Oh yeah, yeah. Super white and white. And like pink. it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Little pink. You Subsequently, pink that's too. why I've had like skin cancer four times. Every but, tan uh, line is relative, Shannon. Yeah, it's all relative. So then you kept moving up. You did the women's cycling team and then you worked with like a women's pro team. Right? Yeah. So, you know, UC Davis, 94, oh, that's a long time ago. We won the collegiate national title. We took that away from CU Boulder. Yeah. And so. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there was some interest at the University of Colorado for me to come and coach here. And that's where I ended up going to grad school. And it seemed just like a perfect situation. But, you know, I didn't get into CU when I first applied. Oh. It was my first choice, but my GPA sucked. Like I knew that I knew my stuff by the time I was a senior in college. But it took me so long to learn how to hammer those nails in yeah. that the grades didn't reflect the fact that I was really good at hammering nails by the time. I, I actually never knew that you didn't have good grades in undergrad. I would assume that you had straight A's because Al is, is so extremely knowledgeable when you talk to him. And I think that just, again, points to it that, you know, subsequently getting your master's and your PhD and coaching all these, you know, famous athletes, you know your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just had to figure out I the think, game. I think I, I know my stuff because 
it took me a long time to learn how to learn. Yeah. Right. And by the time I did learn how to learn, I felt really confident about what I did know, but my grades didn't reflect that. I had great GRE scores. So I called the University of Colorado at Boulder and I'm like, hey, look, can I talk to someone about my application? I got denied. And they put me in touch with a professor here, Dr. William Burns. He was a graduate advisor in the integrated physiology department. And he looked at my file and was like, yeah, you're not going to cut it. There's like no way. You just don't <laughs> even pass the calculator. And at that point, I knew that there was no chance and I had nothing to lose. So I said to him, well, how about I make you a bet? And the bet was that if he gave me a one-hour interview and asked me any question that he wanted about physiology, exercise physiology, if he didn't think that I was as talented as any graduate student in their department, that you know he could say no. But otherwise, that is a bold move, Al. He had to let I, me yeah, in. I didn't know that about That's you. That's a bold, I yeah, like bold it. move. But but I think the bolder move was was really Dr. Burns was yeah. Bill Burns because he he heard in me the desire and he was willing to give me that chance and he really defended me because. There were certainly a lot of professors and administrators who didn't want me in, but he gave me that interview and he fought tooth and nail to get me into the program. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So thanks, Bill. So Al, we, we talk about this stuff with being great that there's, it's that grind every day and you have to work every day. You, you, you obviously were doing that to get your skill set, to get your knowledge base, to practice coaching these various teams. And eventually you're making the jump and you're, you're moving to professional cycling teams. And you're actually moving not just professional cycling teams, you're moving to the most elite riders on those professional cycling teams, culminating ultimately in having Lance Armstrong ask you to be his coach. And obviously, you know, when people are listening to this, Lance Armstrong carries a lot of baggage, you know, when people hear that name, yeah. but he's also an amazing athlete and super famous. So maybe you want to just tell us briefly, I don't, you don't have to get into it, but like, how did this affect you? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, when I finished my PhD, my PhD work revolved around this developing, helping to develop this rear hub power meter uh, that eventually turned into a product called the Power Cap. And it was like kind of the first step in this era that we now call the quantified self, where you've got all of these wearables and all this technology that you can attach to an athlete and figure out what it is that they're doing. But, you know, I finished and basically didn't have a job, moved back in with my mom effectively. And I got a call. She from, was like, see, Al, you should have done accounting. <laughs> I, she was actually really cool about it. You know, I think she gave me a lot of space and I hit a lot of golf balls during <laughs> that time. Um, and, you know, it was, it was during one of those moments. I was actually, I would hit these golf balls from her front yard into the park across the street. I had nothing else to do. And this was probably about a, you know, three or four month period of time where I was just trying to figure things out. And I got a call from an athlete named Floyd Landis and Floyd had formerly been Lance Armstrong's teammate. They, you know, were best friends. He had helped Lance win all these tours, but they, you know, had a falling out. And he called me and basically said, hey, look, here's the deal. Lance has this entire team behind him to help him win the tour. Do you want to be my team? And that seemed like a, a great challenge. But when I got into the sport with Floyd, I was kind of slowly indoctrinated into this whole kind of really crazy world, right? That was inundated with performance enhancing drugs and a lot of nefarious behavior. And it was just a bad scene that I ended up finding to be super, super traumatizing. I was a young kid out of graduate school, kind of exposed to way more than I was prepared to be exposed to. One of the revelations that came to me was that it didn't have to be this way and that these athletes didn't want to do this. They did it because they thought it was the only way. Yeah. 
And if we could really think about new solutions, then we could effectively change that because nobody wanted to cheat. And long story short, I ended up uh, teaming up with a guy named Jonathan Botters, and we wrote a grant to the World Anti-Doping Agency, which we ended up getting around an idea of not looking for the drugs themselves, but looking for biological markers associated with those drugs. And we ended up kind of starting over with a whole new group of young athletes. And we subjected them to this new study to look at whether or not biological markers could help us to detect the use of performance-enhancing drugs. And that ended up turning into something called the biological passport. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that really was changing the sport. And then ultimately you and Jonathan, you know, continued on and had, you know, worked together on Garmin. Garmin was one of the names. There's a lot of names for cycling teams. If you guys don't know out there, there's a business that runs a cycling team and then they sell billboard space. So they spell billboard space on the jerseys. And that's why those team names change at times because it might be Garmin and then it's Cannondale and then it's whoever else is going to pay for this contract. That's but right. you, you and Jonathan were on Slipstream Sports, yeah, which is that essentially- That was the organization that yeah. was effectively like the Joe Gibbs racing of NASCAR, exactly. right? <laughs> and that's where I, I worked for the same team. So that's when Alan and I realized this dream of, hey, we're going to work on the same cycling team together. We were working for Slipstream Sports and Garmin, right. Garmin Chipotle, all the various names that you can come up with. And- you know, we did have this revelation when we were sitting there. We're like, oh, we said we were going to do this. That's I think right. we were laying in, I, I think you always show that picture of me sleeping and you put toilet paper over my head That's and right. drew a face on it. And yeah. when I woke up, you showed me and go, Shan, we made it. <laughs> That's right. We're at the That's Tour right. de France. That's right. You know, it's funny because these little hotel rooms in France, when you're on tour, you're part of this spectacular event. And these hotels just suck. garbage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you are in the worst, the smallest, the tiniest hotels possible. And I remember literally like coming in one day, just dead beat, just so tired. And these beds are basically squished next to each other and, you know, laying down and kind of rolling over and being like, Jen, man, we made it. <laughs> we made it. High five. Yeah. That, it's funny because I always tell people, you know, the Tour de France, obviously from the outside, so amazing. And yeah. when you're in it, it's totally a groundhog day when you're working, you That's know, right. and, right. the, and the, it's a grind in itself, just obviously the staff and just getting from place to place. Yeah. It's not quite glamorous. The best part of the day for a pro cyclist, I think is when they walk out of the bus to sign in and then they get on their bike and that's like a 10 to 15 minute period. Yeah. And then the rest of it just sucks. Right. The they, just sucks. they race hard for like seven to eight hours. They yeah. get off the bike. They got to eat, they massage, they got to eat again. Yeah. They got to go to bed. They got to wake up and do it again. Yeah. The little like, calm before the storm is probably it. Yeah. But it was ultimately us on the Garmin squad that, that changed, I think, the fundamental basis of doping in sport, right? And that also attracted Lance Armstrong to come back. I think that he figured if the playing field was really level, that he was still yeah, the best, he win. best athlete. Um, and in 2009, you know, we were part of the team that had two athletes in the top 10. We had Bradley Wiggins who finished fourth. We had Christian Vandevelt who ended up finishing eighth that year. We had Ryder Hegedal who would go on to win the Giro d'Italia, you know, as one of the key domestiques there, Danny Pate. I mean, we had one of the most incredible teams yeah, that out team there. That team was amazing. I remember one of the executives had come to me during the race with Wiggins and was like, is he doing something? I'm like, no, yeah. we're not doing anything. Yeah. Like yeah. this is just his training in riding like crazy. Yeah, like this is right. amazing. But, but you know, with Wiggins, and I think this is kind of how ultimately things transition to Lance for me is that every time, I don't know if you remember this, but whenever Wiggins made the front group on the climbs, he would scream out in this really crazy, annoying British voice, here we go. 
yeah, yeah. and it was just annoying the crap out of Lance. And one of Lance's teammates, a guy named Levi Leipheimer, you know, comes to me at the bus and he's like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta get Wiggins to just chill out on this here go <laughs> thing. It's like driving us nuts. And the, the story that ultimately Levi tells me is that they're coming over the top of a climb in the Alps or something. And they hear Wiggins whistling out, here we go. And Lance turns to Levi and basically says, how are these guys still with us? And Levi turns to Lance and says, Dr. Lim. <laughs> and, you know, I love the Garmin team. That was my family. Right? Yeah, that, that was, that, those were the guys. And I never, ever wanted to leave that squad. But after that year's tour, I realized that, you know, I had a valuable skill set. You know, yeah. uh, I remember that. I remember you calling me, Al. Yeah. I remember where I was and you called me and you said, Lance just asked me to be his coach. Yeah. And you're like, what do you think? What should I do? Yeah. And we had this long discussion, obviously, because of your stance on things, Lance's history, yeah. him being the, obviously the face of the sport. People out there listening, like Al is, is very fundamentally, I mean, it is his fun, fundamental being to, to race clean. And I, I actually remember conversations with other teams where you, would start like, you'd almost be shaking, you know, like when yeah. we're talking to yeah. another team's doctor or something yeah. and you're like, no, you know, that's just not okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's such a fundamental thing for you that I think it was hard to say, Hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to buy in and say, this guy's going to do it clean and I can that's help right. him do it. You know, you know, the, the issue was that we were insiders on the sport and we knew things about what people were doing that wasn't part of the public domain. Yeah. And so I think that we all knew about Lance's history but that wasn't yet public, right? Yeah. And one of my experiences was that you couldn't make this sport clean and you couldn't convince athletes to race clean if you weren't willing to give them a chance to do so. If you just dismissed individuals for their mistakes or for you know, whatever reason brought them to that behavior in the first place, then none of us had a shot, right? And I think that for me, it was having a conversation with Lance where I just asked him, you know, pointedly, why do you want to do this? Effectively, why would you want to try to ride a tour clean? And his answer to me was really profound and maybe kind of changed the way I thought about my role in all of this. And he said to me, you know, I need something to tell my kids. And that was really, really intense because I realized that if I really, really believed in clean racing and in the movement, that I had to give him a chance and that he was maybe the only one who could really actually change the nature of the sport. Yeah, if anyone could do it, it would be him. I do think I got this from you, but I think about it all the time. You know, we talk about the pillow test. Yeah. And the pillow test pretty much guides my life. The pillow test is, you know, when you, you have your actions for the day, whatever you do, whether it's sports or work or whatever, you have to be comfortable with yourself so that when you lay your head on your pillow at night and no one else is there, no one else knows what you know, that's right. You feel good. That you can you know, fall asleep at night. You feel fine. Yeah. So I think that that pillow test is really like a concept that I like to, to rely. I, I use it on my regular life. And I think the other thing about all this too is what you were saying. You know, he said he wanted to, you know, have something to tell his kids that so people need second chances. And I think it's hard when we make judgments from the outside of these these young kids that are racing their bikes. Right. That's right. They, they know nothing else in their life. They've committed everything to racing their bike. Most of them didn't even go to school really because they were racing their bikes, yeah, you know, uh, right. they went to Olympic training center to add some classes on the side, but they were there to race their bikes. Right? right. And if you told me that when I was finishing med school that, Hey, you have to take a test and they're going to grade you on this test. 
everybody else is taking this test. We gave them the answers. Yeah. Do you want the answers? And I have to make that decision that I've just spent all this time to become a doctor and I have to take a test and I can say, no, no, I'm going to do it without the answers. I'm going to do it clean. But really, if you put yourself in that spot and you say, I have nothing else, I'm not on a fair playing ground. It's just a hard thing for a 19 or 20 year old That's right. to really grasp their hands around. And then once they're in it, they're, they're in it. They're on a bit pro team at the Tour de France making money. And yeah. you know, it's not an easy choice. Well, especially if it's cultural and especially if that person giving you the answers is your most respected professor who you've looked up to all these years. Exactly, yeah. And he or she is now telling you that this is actually the way it's done and that we know how talented you are. We know how knowledgeable you are. Let's not take any chances so that you don't get licensed. Yeah, right? it's crazy. And you know, you make a great point. These are kids and these were kids and we were kids. And that's what makes it so difficult. Ultimately, you did the training with Lance. And then tell me about the, the end of that, because I think that started your next adventure, right? Yeah. So I came home from the 2010 Tour de France and Lance was already under federal investigation because his former sponsor was the U.S. Postal Service. And so now the federal government was involved because there was a case that he may have defrauded the U.S. government, right? So I came home from that year's tour and waiting for me at my condo in Boulder, Colorado, were basically a cadre of federal investigators. I remember and that, yeah. The, the gig was, you know, for at least me up because now by association, I was on part of the, the grand jury investigation and couldn't work and was effectively benched for almost a year and a half that it took for me to basically clear my name and to get back on top of things. And it was during that time that athletes who I had formerly worked with were asking me for these recipes and these nutritional ideas that I had helped them with. One of them was I'd made a, a, a sports drink for them basically from scratch every morning because a lot of the athletes had GI problems or performance issues with the sports drinks that we were using at the time. I was also making like little sushi rice cakes instead of dry energy bars. And so there was a lot of interest. Those in are really good, by the way. Oh, delicious. Mm-hmm. Of whether or not I could help them. And initially I was kind of like, I don't have time to make you guys freaking sports drink, like yeah. whatever. But I, you know, felt bad. I didn't have anything to do. And I had a, a really close friend who I'd coached, Ian McGregor, who had, was also a pro cyclist. He was injured. And the two of us, we just started making the sports drink together and sending it off to, you know, our former teammates and friends. And eventually there was so much demand that we bought these five gallon food safe paint buckets from a local hardware store in town called McGuckin Hardware. In Alan's kitchen is yeah, great. So yeah, pre-mixing the ingredients in my kitchen and then taking it down to the hardware store every day and using the paint shaker to make the stuff. We would bag and sticker the stuff. And, and, and they actually sold it at the beginning. I remember this out, the secret drink mix, right? It wasn't even right. like a thing yet. You just would be like, I want the secret drink mix. That's right. You go to that, a website. That's what you called it. <laughs> yeah, it was just like an X. You clicked on it and a few days later, you got some, some weird powder. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, but we started to really realize that we were helping people and that the product was changing the way that people were interacting with their athletics and changing performance and that it was solving a big, big problem. And we started taking the business more seriously or the idea of having our own business more seriously. I had zero business experience. Ian had zero business experience. Uh, you know, we had this kind of idea that we had some product, we could sell it, maybe put it in a bank. We could use the money to make more product and repeat the cycle. And one of our good friends who helped us start the business, Aaron Foster, he one day looked at Ian and I and he was like, you know, guys, there's only one rule we can't break. One rule we cannot ever break. 
And we look at him all seriously, and he says, we can never spend more money than in the bank. <laughs> and, and that's been it's kind of- Foster. Aaron, Aaron, Foster, yeah, yeah. Aaron Foster, his nickname is The Juice. He, Juice. He, he was on our cycling team as well in yeah. college. He's a good friend of uh, ours also. And, and he, he's like Forrest Gump. Uh, yeah. Aaron Foster's like Forrest totally. Gump. Totally. Whatever he touches just yeah. goes to gold. So. Yeah. And so we needed, we needed Aaron big time. And, you know, it worked. And that's basically the principle that we've been following ever since it's been- now, eight years since we launched Scratch, we call it Scratch Labs because not only do we believe that food and drink is better from scratch, but we also believe more importantly, what we were facing, what I was facing in my, that point in life, what Ian was facing, what Aaron was facing is that this idea of reinventing yourself. And so it's really this belief that no matter where you find yourself in life, you can always start from scratch. Man, start from scratch. I love and that. And what happens when you start from scratch? It's the grind. It's the grind it, all over. It is. Right? I will say this. Business is really, really hard. Yeah. And while we initially would get a little scared by competition or by our own ignorance, we realized that it didn't really matter because not a lot of people are willing to do the grind, to do the work. I don't know if this is inappropriate. I once asked a cattle guy how many cows he had and he said, son, you don't ask a cattleman how many cows he has. It's like asking him how much money he has in a bank. But- how much per year? What's your, what's your sales at scratch per year? Our sales are good. Uh, we're in the lots of millions. Lots of millions. <laughs> That's awesome. We're at a number. I mean, look, like less than 4% of American businesses crack a million. That's crazy. Less That's than 0.001% of American businesses crack 500 million. And very few American businesses end up being profitable or aren't leveraged or in some way or you know, don't end up having to take on venture capital or private equity and end up selling their company to somebody else. Right. And so you get this constant, you know, kind of maybe divergence of, of money of the haves and the have nots. And so we're really proud that we've always taken not kind of a finite approach to make this amount of money and sell the company and exit. But we really have this vision of growing what we call the biggest little company in America, where it remains solely owned, where we never sell or take on investors, where we're able to grow this consistently every single year at a profit that we can then reinvest back into our people, our customers, our our team and, you know, our, our oh, that's awesome. lifestyle. So go out there Al, and get some more scratch. Scratch is great. Well, Al, what I think is so fascinating about your story that, you know, now I get to hear it from beginning to end is you're talking about this business and where you guys are at now. This is from a guy who didn't have perfect grades in college, who got turned down for his PhD. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about businessmen being so successful, they think, oh, well, he had more opportunity. He had more intelligence than me. He had all these things I don't have. But hearing your story, I think it's really fascinating because it is about passion. It's about consistency. It's about the grind That's and right. you day by day getting there. You know, this didn't happen overnight. You didn't have a multi-million dollar company overnight. You didn't get to work with these incredible cyclists overnight. That's right. You were turned down at the beginning. So you just, your, your persistence and perseverance and your grind led you to this greatness. And yeah. I think that's, what's really fascinating. I think this. Steph actually, um, your Steph's you. known Alan for a long time. Now as well, now. right? Yeah. So Steph met Alan. I had her come out to meet me at the Tour de France. And when she flew out to the Tour de France, I wasn't yet in Paris, but Al was. So she had never met Al, but I had Al go meet her and he took her out to dinner. And um, I Steph think he said, I'm has... the only Asian man in a leather jacket in the lobby. You yeah. can't miss me. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I don't know that what I my think was, sense the, was about. I think was that. the text <laughs> to me of how to locate Al in Paris. But so yeah. the reason I'm saying that is because both Steph and I, We'll, we'll vouch for the fact that, you know, creating scratch to what it is today 
that that didn't happen because you just said I'm going to do it and snap your fingers. Like I mean, this was like up and down. There was a lot of uh, yeah. hardships. There was a lot of worrisome times. A lot of phone calls to me, Al. Yeah, you just stuck with it. You know, you kept you kept going. But I think more importantly, I didn't do it alone. Yeah, right? yeah. I had a lot of really great people around me. I had a lot of people who really believed in me. I had people who were willing to bend over backwards and give me a shot. And that for me is probably the most humbling part of it, right? Yeah. A lot of people who invested in you. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I know we went a little longer than normal on our podcast. Normally we try to be under you know 30 minutes, but I find it interesting to talk to Al, but that might just be because he's my best friend. So Al, from this experience, this podcast, why don't you give the people who are listening three takeaway points? You know, I like three, the number yeah. three. So let's yeah. pick three things that you would like to take away from kind of your journey of you know, being shut down, but sticking with it, becoming a, you know, a famous cycling coach, really winning the biggest races, starting a business from scratch, having it be a big time business. You know, even though you call a small business, Steph and I are like, it's a pretty big business now. Yeah. We can see through that. (laughs) Give us three takeaways. You know, I think the first thing is that you have to just try, right? Nothing is guaranteed. Failure is always going to be there, but if you don't continuously just keep on trying, nothing will ever happen. And you just don't know. There is always, I think, a sense of possibility and it begins by putting one foot forward. And so while Yoda might have said, do or do not, there is no try. This is the one thing I disagree (laughs) you know, with Yoda on that you do actually have to try and you have to try so many times, yeah, so like many times. over and over and over and over yeah. again. So just try. I think the other thing too, is that in sport, you know, we talk about kind of this idea that I was never necessarily interested in, in winning at the highest level, that it was just about being better. It was about improvement. And I think that people in any pursuit get really hung up on perfection. They get really hung up on being the best. And for me, better is not about perfection. Better is about progress. If you can make a little bit of progress every single day to the idea of 300 seconds, holy cow, over a period of time, the amount of gain that you can make is so incredible. And you'll always be kicking yourself in the butt at times because you'll, you may never be satisfied, but that's okay, right? Because every once in a while, you'll sit back and look at what you've got and say, hey, that's not so bad, right? There is at least some, some reward despite maybe, you know, all of the the BS and all of the challenge. Yeah, I love that. And I think finally, look guys, I love taking naps. And I would probably Now you're say, speaking my language yeah, out. <laughs> like, I love the lazy days. I'm not always motivated. I don't always have, you know, all of the energy or all the time or all the focus to do things the way that I want to do. But I do think that the consistency in this grind is about finding joy and effort. Right. So if there's like a last idea or a point, it's find the joy in the effort, you know, be able to actually realize that this isn't necessarily even about delayed gratification or having to sacrifice to reach some endpoint. I think the only reason I survived everything that I've been through or all the quote unquote hard work is because I've always loved what I do. I've always been passionate about it and it hasn't been easy, but you know, for me, this is always where I found my joy. You know, you need to separate out joy, overall joy from day to day. Like, am I feeling really, you know, happy in the moment? No, you can have days where you're like, this, this is hard, or I don't like this part of my job, or I don't like this part of scratch or being a doctor. Right. But I like being a doctor Yeah. overall. Like I find joy in that, you know? So I think that we're talking about that overall 
sense of, you know, you like your profession. That's you might right. not do in your taxes, right. but you like overall yeah. you know, having your business. You know, as an example, for me, grad school was hard. And I remember coming home one night and telling my parents, calling them up and saying, look, I think I'm going to quit. I can't hack it. Like, it's just too hard. And my parents were so amazing. They're just like, it's fine. You can come home. You can live with us. You can work for your uncle Robert. That's the last thing I ever wanted to do. But, you know, they gave me all these options. And I remember going to bed that night and sleeping like a little baby. And I slept so well that night that the next morning I was totally re-energized and I did a whole nother day. And by the end of the day, I was like, I'm quitting. Called them up again. I'm quitting. They're like, it's fine. It's okay. Slept like a little baby. <laughs> and so I started to learn that maybe the only way to get through the really challenging stuff is to quit every night. Oh, interesting. Right? And just start over. Wow. But you started. <laughs> but yeah, I, always, yeah. I always tried. I always started over, right? So like pretty much every night when my pillow hit the head, I would like be done. I was totally over it. I quit. And every <laughs> morning when I woke up, I was just like, eh. I'm going to keep going. Uh, the grind. Give it another day. Hey, Al, thanks for coming. We really appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you. I mean, you have an amazing story. Um, thank you. You guys do too. And thank you for, for all that you do and all the people that you help. Yeah. Uh, thank you, we, you know, we're, I'm just really focused right now on the grind and, and letting people know that like you have to do it. You have to do it every day. Yeah. And even if you feel like you want to quit at night, you got to wake up the next day and hit the grind. And you got to find the joy in that, in that process, right? If you hate that grind every day, then you need to find a new why. Like, why are you doing this, right? That's you need right. to know what your why is. And that needs to drive you on to say, I'm enjoying the grind, yeah. right? Don't, don't take it out on me in traffic, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for uh, listening. We'll see you guys uh, next week. If you guys have any questions, shoot us an email. You can go to the website and shoot us an email at drsovendahl.com. Hope you enjoyed it. See ya. See ya. Thanks. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine, and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening. Thank you.